This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and today we have four-time Olympian, Reed Preeti in the uh, in the studio with us. How you doing today, Reed? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you being here. I know you are uh, out in beautiful Southern California right now, and uh, but you are joining us on the Circuit of Success podcast. And so uh, we know your story, but for those listeners that may not know, who four-time Olympian, uh, gold medal in the 2008 Beijing Games, and a bronze medal in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Games. Uh, once you fill our listeners on who Reed Pretty is, well, let's uh, let's try to nutshell that question. So um, <laughs> I come from a strong family, and uh, you know they've supported uh, me from the very beginning. And I've got three sisters, and I'm second in line. So I have an older sister and two younger sisters. And my father was a, a musician uh, turned pastor, and that didn't happen overnight. So. Um, you know, his career track had us moving cross country when I was young, um, three different times. And I think that was sort of form formative because, you know, moving is not easy. And then when you move from one coast to the other, uh, presents another set of challenges. And so I sort of got used to moving around at a young age, which actually served me very well. Uh, because once I graduated college, I ended up living all over the world, literally. Um, and, uh, you know, literally from SoCal to Siberia, spent three years in Russia. But I was never, um, I, you know, I played all the sports and uh, was really big into soccer, played basketball, baseball. Uh, and then uh, when I was, we were in Florida at the time, and I was a, going into my freshman year of high school. And in Florida, it's really hot and sticky. And so kind of the culture there is to satisfy your PE credit during the summer because that way you're not sweaty in class. And so I just kind of went along with the masses and joined um, summer school and PE. And it was there that I was introduced to volleyball for the first time. And I was encouraged by the PE coach, who was also the volleyball coach, to come out and try out for the team. Now, at the time, I was only five foot four inches. Uh, I was tiny. Um, but I went out and I could only play the back row and I absolutely fell in love with it. It was it was I mean, it was uh, love at first sight, so to speak. And we had a successful year at the JV. And our claim to fame was that we beat the varsity team in a scrimmage. And, of course, those guys were men. They had, like, leg hair and chest hair. And they were uh, they tall. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and then from there, it was just sort of we moved, actually, right after that year to Phoenix. And the jury was out. Was volleyball going to even be offered? And it just so happened to be the very first year that boys volleyball was sanctioned in the state of Arizona. And uh, I think we just celebrated like the 20 year, 20 years of that, which was uh, pretty phenomenal. But, um, and you know, I just, it was like a, a passion that turned obsession and I, that's all I wanted to do. I just absolutely loved it. And my parents were totally, uh, they were supportive, but they had no idea what was coming down the, the pipeline. Um, 
and there was no sort of hovering and like over investment. It was just, uh, that's cool that Reed likes us and, and, and we'll support it. And eventually went to college. I w- wasn't the blue chip guy at all. I was actually recruited as a setter and, and translated into being um, an outside hitter the first two weeks I was there. And that's kind of like being recruited as a quarterback. And then you show up and the coach is like, oh, by the way, you're going to be a running back. Um, and so that that was interesting. But, you know, I, it was one of those things where I, I couldn't there was no um, if you were a betting person, you wouldn't have said, hey, this guy is going to have longevity and this is good. This guy's going somewhere, uh, you know, and it's just one door opened after the next. And I just sort of kind of faithfully walked through it and just tried to work as hard as I could. And, you know, 16 years later from a professional career, um, I'm still going. That's awesome. And, and training for a fifth, right? I am. I am. I've set a, I've set a lofty goal to, um, to, to try to get to Tokyo 2020 and doing that on, on, on the beach. So in sand volleyball. Right. So obviously you uh, are going from the, uh, from the court where it was, uh, just my volleyball knowledge here, six V six, right. And, yep. uh, to the beach is uh, obviously an entirely different, uh, you know, type of court that you're playing on obviously sand and now it's 2v2 so talk to us about that and, and I think uh, where I'd like to go with this is you talked about it you said it earlier is your passion became an obsession so talk about that and uh, and what's behind this trying for the fifth Olympic for you yeah I, you know I think I kind of have to go all you know a little bit backwards uh, back into high school when I first started playing volleyball um, you know back in those high school years it was hard to rally 12 guys a uh, lot easier to rally three other guys and there's sand courts at uh, parks and, and hotels uh, in the places I lived. And so we would play a lot of sand volleyball. And at the time, the AVP on NBC was happening every week. So I had my VHA, VHS tapes recording it. So yeah. my entire sort of professional career, I was constantly peering over the fence of beach volleyball. But it just never made sense. You know, it went bankrupt a couple of times and it just never seemed it's, it's very popular in public consciousness. But from a business standpoint, uh, indoor volleyball has been a very strong and healthy business uh, overseas primarily. So it just made sense to stick stick there. Um, but now that, obvi- you know, my indoor career was was coming to a close and mainly because my family, uh, my kids are at ages where they need to sort of uh, plug into the community, go to school, you know, et cetera, not just be on a jet all over the time, you know, all the place. And, um, and so it it just seemed like the right time. And so the challenges are immense. And when I, it was about a year ago now that I was starting to formulate a plan and I initially went out there and tried to just do what all the other beach players were doing and train the way they were training. And I, I noticed fairly quickly that, for me to succeed at this lofty goal, I would have to do it my way, a different way, a way that I was used to, not the way that they're used to. And they're used to autonomy and lack of infrastructure, lack of support. And I'm used to showing up, you know, to, to a single gym, a facility with medical staff, technical coordinators, you know, this high level um, uh, support system. And so I just said, okay, well, gosh, if, if, if that's how I've learned to thrive, um, how do I surround myself with that sort of support? And that's when sort of this idea of hacking beach volleyball, um, um, came to mind. And, and it's been a, 
an amazing journey in this first season, these last six months. And I think we've proven concept on the court that we can hyperspeed the learning curve uh, by trying to be utilize, you know, everything that's out there from data support to focus reps. You know, basically the question that I'm asking is what wins points? Um, not what is the what is the rest of the what game is the rest of the world playing or what's normal for beach volleyball or what are the what are all the skills and let's go try to be great at all of them, but what are the one or two skills that really move the needle in terms of probability of points won and lost? And let's go all in on that. If we have a limited time frame, um, you know, let's better spend our time on the things that that win points. And so um, that's kind of been our focus. And and obviously, there's so many differences between the two. You know, there's there's similar skill sets. Um, however, you know, you're on the sand. Uh, you're playing in elements like wind and sun. Um, you know, from one match to the next, you'll have different conditions. And so for what worked 45 minutes ago is not going to work now. Um, and so, you know, all of those things present a very unique set of challenges that's been very fun to try to pick the lock. Absolutely. I think it's just fascinating, too. I mean, as uh, I'm sitting here with Dan Laurie, he's a uh, wealth advisor in our office and a huge volleyball guy. And, and that's how we obviously get introduced. But you know, he even talked about the, the smaller court. I mean, the whole thing is completely different, right? I mean, it's like going and playing golf right-handed in my world and then going and saying, okay, now you're going to play left-handed and getting good at it again. I mean, yeah, sure, the basics are there, but I mean, it's completely different, right? Yeah, it's totally different. So to me, you thrive in, in, sport, in any sport to, you know, the most important things you can do are to control your body and to control the ball. Um, and that's what I tell young kids is like, that's why fundamentals are important. Like if you can control yourself and you can control the ball, you can do great things. Now imagine, you know, being in a gym with a hard surface that never changes with no wind and no sun. And you have five other guys to cover this court. You know, your, your role becomes highly specialized and there's not a lot of variation in terms of elements. And then you go to the sand where sand depth plays a factor and you know the sun and the wind and this ball is moving around and blowing and you know all for all these reasons it becomes very difficult and you know one of the things that is i found um mentally difficult is that you're because there's no specialization you're kind of doing everything and i found it to be mentally overloading because it's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to process so many things and, and I'm so new at this that nothing's on autopilot. So I can't just take something off, like every action that I'm doing, I have to think about and it, and it just gets really mentally overwhelming. So that's, that's kind of where you, I'm sort of trying to figure out how to prioritize, like what are the three to five things that I really need to focus on right now mentally, and then let the other things just sort of take care of themselves. I might have you, uh, show up to my fourth and fifth grade basketball practice then if you don't mind based on your comments a little bit ago last night I was telling him you have to control yourself to control the game and you just said that so it's kind of like man maybe he tapped into my practice and uh we actually went into uh this we were doing a scrimmage and I had them they I made them walk the scrimmage I mean the kids thought it was like the worst thing ever right but I'm like and so let's apply that to the business world or the volleyball world whatever it is if you're really, really good at the basics, right, you're going to be great at whatever it is you do. 
but you got to master the basics and you have to do those things The I'm using air quotes, the quote unquote boring stuff over and over and over again. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you have to do that and you almost have to love it. Um, you know, there's parts of fundamentals as it relates to sport that um, I think that maybe I didn't enjoy the action per se, but I loved the concept of like mastery. Like, how do I master these moves? And what I find in, in sport is that you have, you know, in golf, you know, I, I golf as well. I'm, I'm definitely on the, uh, the learning part of this. But, you know, pretty early on, you recognize there's two versions of yourself, the practice range version and the on-course version. Right. And so... That guy in uh, the range is an All-American. Exactly. And so when there's no pressure and you're free flowing and you're able to just do these things and this action and this swing, um, you have one result. But then when you get on the course and there's obstacles and there's specific targets and there's a score, obviously the pressure is different and that changes the outcome um, of the action. And so to me, you know, when I'm spending 10,000 hours trying to perfect or not even perfect, that's a terrible word to use, but trying to master these fundamental skills. It's so that when the pressure's, you know, the highest, my form doesn't break. I don't tighten up. Uh, I've done it so many times that I can just, you know, perform that action. And, and, and as I'm sort of starting off in the business world myself, I can see, you know, very similar parallels in terms of, you know, for me, it's prioritization. Like, again, what are the things that really are going to push pieces across the board today? It's easy to be busy and feel like you've accomplished something, but you know, in business, there's, there's stats that matter as well. And, and you're trying to push pieces across the board, not just be busy. Right. Yeah. Cause just because you're busy doesn't mean you're being productive. Right. I mean, you can be quote unquote busy working on the volleyball game or busy, you know, and like in the investment world working on stuff. But at the end of the day, if you're not serving your client, and you're not being productive, it doesn't work. Exactly. It doesn't work. So, so let's talk about what's your purpose. I mean, obviously you've, you've done the, you've done the Olympic thing, right? I mean, four Olympics training for a fifth one. That's a long career. Uh, so one, just congratulations on being healthy and being able to do that. Most can't do it, but then you've done it at the highest level possible. You've won a gold medal. You've won a bronze medal. What's your purpose now? What, what's, what's Reed Preeti's next, next vision? Obviously you got the Olympics, but what's the purpose? You know, I think I feel just personally compelled to maximize my potential. And so, you know, I just turned 40 um, on Sunday and I don't feel like I thought I would feel at 40. I feel great. And it feels like I could say I could rest on my laurels and say that was a great run. Now it's time for me to enter into the real world and and do something (laughs) different. But uh, I'm just compelled to see and to know and test my limits. And I just feel like as humans, we, I mean, that thrill of sort of being at the outer edges of our abilities and and sort of, you know, that sort of thrill and and excitement is, is captivating. And that's what you get in an Olympic Games, you know, especially when you get into the medal rounds, uh, there's only two teams that are in that final match. And what a thrill it is to be in that moment and have that opportunity. And that's kind of what I'm chasing. And, uh, you know, what's really fascinating. I speak to businesses 
uh, pretty regularly. And and this last year, as I've sort of become this entrepreneur, uh, at least try maybe more of a wantrepreneur, as Mark Cuban would say, um, I'm finding those same emotions and feelings and sensations. Uh, it's sort of that like push the chips all in. Um, I'm at the outer edges of my ability. I have no idea what the outcome is going to be. I'm trying to hyper focus on the on the moment, yet understanding this big, you know, all of those things you have in business as well. And so it's it's been pretty exciting for me to know that you know in volleyball I get that for two hours at a time, but but in business you can get it for years on end, as you sort of you know pursue your passions in the business world. So it's been very encouraging to me to know that that competitive drive and spirit and, and that thrill of being at the outer ed- edges of your ability is there in the business world as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we talk about that all the time. I mean, the, these, everything that, you know, the discipline, the perseverance, the getting beat, the getting knocked down and getting back up, all that stuff works in the business world. And that's why I'm fascinated by the sports and the business uh, you know how they're really a partnership and we have so many you know successful college athletes in our firm because they they get it right they get it doesn't mean if you didn't play sports you can't be successful i'm obviously not saying that but it it certainly will uh reap a lot of benefits for you no doubt uh going forward so so dan laurie as i said sitting here you know he talked about um your deal he'd read somewhere that you talk about embracing failure you know how have you lived that in your life uh, embracing failure there, there was a maturing process that took place as I just sort of developed as, as an adult and as a man. And I think that, you know, along that journey, I started to recognize the parallels between things that I was learning on the court and things that I was learning and living off the court. It was kind of in that zone where, there were, you know, just those ideas of, of not wanting to, you know, hating losing. And, and and failure. And so what I started recognizing was without even really knowing it, I was doing everything I could to avoid those feelings. And, and that entailed this sort of systemic process that involved taking ownership of what was taking place and then trying to see where I want to go, judge that by where I am today, and then formulate a plan to, to sort of activate on it. And, um, it was sort of, I think it was in a coffee shop in Russia where, you know, my house of cards just came tumbling down. I was, I was uh, in, I think probably it was either Novosibirsk, Siberia, um, Russia. And it was the day after a game, I'm sipping a cappuccino and I'm writing in my journal, something I do a lot uh, just to slow myself down. And I'm writing about the match the night before. And I'm talking about how you know, I wasn't as offensively uh, potent as I thought I should be. I didn't get enough sets. I didn't get the right kind of sets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I went on uh, with this sort of dialogue, and then it really occurred to me. I was like, you know what? I've written this before. In fact, I've probably written this a dozen times about a dozen different setters and teams. And that's when I just, you know, totally was able to look myself in the in the, in the eye, in the mirror, and just basically say, you know, who's the common denominator in all of these narratives? It's me. And so here I am sort of blame shifting and trying to offload any sort of responsibility, but you know, I'm the one that, uh, that's been a part of all these instances. And that was really the turning point for me to become a great learner and to sort of embrace failure, uh, and, and don't not even look at it as failure, but looking at it as, what weaknesses are being revealed? What, why did I come up short? And 
you know, how do I formulate a plan to, to ensure that this doesn't happen again? And, and even this last summer on the beach, every time I had a chance to play a top 10 team, uh, I sort of relished that opportunity because I knew that they were going to tell me what my weaknesses are just by virtue of how they played me. Um, and so I tried to be very, very alert as to what the other team was trying to do against me because I knew that they were exploiting a weakness that they saw that maybe I didn't see. And, you know, had I not gone through that whole development of really embracing failure, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to, to learn, um, and be a good learner. Yeah. And I think there's a lot in there, man. I appreciate you sharing that because, the thing, my takeaway from that is a couple things, um, you know, for the listeners out there. I mean, I think the, the key is you talked about sitting down and journaling about the night before, right? So one, so many of us get busy. We think we don't have time for this. I'm a huge guy that sits down and journals and writes in my, in my journal a lot and notebook and, and carry it with me everywhere I go practically. And, and I think that's huge because you're slowing down to speed up, right? You were slowing down to learn from what you did differently and then the old saying that, what is it, the student appears when, or the teacher appears when the student is ready. And so no matter how many times you've written that same, that same story, all of a sudden the teacher was there because, in my opinion, you slowed down to speed up and journal. Right? So I think that's huge. I think that's huge that you did that. So when you think, when you think about the journaling, is that part of your, I want to talk about your rituals and your routines, your no-miss type stuff. Is that a, a daily thing for you or what's that look like? You know, it's one of those things where um, a month I'll write every day and then I'll go a couple months without writing. But, you know, like you're saying, it's um, there's nothing worse than learning the same lesson multiple times. You know, like I would rather uh, kind of like the Matrix, you know, like when Trinity's like or, or when Neo says to Trinity, do you know how to fly this helicopter? And she's like, not yet. And then she calls up, the, you know, the switchboard and he right. downloads, you know. I want to be downloading information and I want it to stick um, so that I can move on and continue to learn, you know, more things and journaling helps me do that. And there's nothing better than sort of thumbing through an old journal uh, and seeing just the various lessons and experiences uh, and even relationships. Um, and so I, I find that, yeah, it's, that's one of those no miss things um, on the whole, yeah, not to interrupt you on that, but I mean, I've, I've told hundreds of people probably, and, and very few do it, um, but it's what I call STT or strategic think time. And it's, it's on my calendar. Um, you know, every week I'm putting something on there to where I'm spending at least an hour and a half with a journal, no technology, a pen in my mind, right? And I think that's huge. Whether, again, it's sports world or the business world you're in, for those people that adapt and do that, it is a game changer. I'm telling you for those listening that, that want one nugget for me, if I can give anything, it's that slow down time so you can speed up. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. And, and what's interesting about the tech, putting down the technology that you say is that uh, there's a concept that I've come across recently that I was very surprised by and it's, it's over optimization. So I'm totally addicted to like optimizing, you know, yeah. how do I optimize everything? And, um, recently, uh, I've realized that there's two major areas of my life that are over optimized to the point of not being very productive. And one is my phone. Um, and the other is my house, uh, believe it or not, it, you know, my house with all the travel and indoor volleyball 
we put a gym at my house, we put an office at the house, and now I have young kids. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, that whole work-life balance has sort of got off because everything's in one location. I, I can't sort of set boundaries, you know, this is family time, now this is, you know, deep work, uh, business time, or this is workout time. And, right. and the phone is the same. It's like, man, forever, it was amazing to have all of these applications in one location and, and, and how they all sync together. But now it's become just sort of a black hole of unproductivity. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah. There's, there's guys I know that have meetings and they make people check in their phones. Yeah, I've not gone that dramatic yet, but I think there's something to that. All right. We were just at a, uh, we, we did some training with some Navy SEALs and old CIA folks and this week it was phenomenal. And, uh, but we were in a spot where there was no cell phone coverage. And it was amazing how much more engaged we were with each other. Nobody was really checking emails. You weren't checking text messages, returning calls. It was just amazing how engaged we were with each other. It was awesome. So let's talk about this. When you hear the word clutch, what comes to mind? Clutch is a skill. And it irritates me to no end that guys in suits on TV, on sports radio, try okay. to act like it's something that some people have and other people do not. Right. Clutch is simply the ability to hyper-focus under any situation, whether there be pressure or no pressure. That's my... Have you read the book Relentless by Tim Grover? Uh, yes. Isn't that phenomenal? Very good. And uh, another great one is Grit by yeah. Angela Duckworth. Another great book on that same subject. And so you hear, so you think it's just something, are you born with it or is it something you learn? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely, um, a skill that can be developed and, um, there's specific ways uh, to develop it. We would do it on the national team on the national team. We, for, I would say maybe not the first quad, but after that. So I started playing on the team in 2000 after the first Olympics was in Athens in 2005, we moved to Anaheim. And that was when we started working specifically with uh, a mental coach. And um, there's all sorts of ways that um, different strategies and exercises can strengthen uh, your responses, both under pressure, and not under pressure, and just simply the ability to, to focus. And we would do breathing exercises, we would do visualization, we would have to articulate and basically build a script around our serving routine. Um, you know, serving is one of the is the only closed loop motor skill in our sport. It's just you and the ball. Uh, there's no setter. There's nothing else. And so that's really the only opportunity we have to sort of repeat, um, you know, a script. And what we would say uh, in the sports world is that. Uh, in those pressure moments, you want to be thinking about your routine. You don't want to be thinking about the moment and the score and should I hit this hard or not hard or whatever. You want to just be target focused. And, and that happens through practice and experience. It, it doesn't happen through birth. Um, so I'm a big believer that anybody can be a clutch player. So walk me through that. So a script, I get that. Right. And so even the, the business folks that are out there that are listening, um, I believe we need a script for almost everything, right? And so what what is that script? How did you do it? How did you decide what was in the script? I mean, did you guys sit down and, and whiteboard it? I mean, what that process looked like so you can help others build their script for whatever it is in their world? 
I'm so glad you mentioned whiteboard because that's my favorite thing in the entire world. Um, <laughs> I use my windows. I have no room. I have all windows in my office. So I use my glass nice. and my whiteboard. Glass board. So, uh, you know, for me, in 2005, six, and seven, I worked closely with a guy named Ken Revisa. And he went on, actually, he, he's, he's big in, in, uh, in baseball. He worked a lot with the Angels. But when the Cubs won the World Series, he was in that clubhouse the entire season. Um, and he, he's really great. And uh, we worked together on, you know, first we just sort of understood, like, the context. Like, what happens between when a point falls and then I go back to serve. Serving is one of the top two skills in volleyball that impacts points won and lost and the probability of winning points. And so it's incredibly important. It starts your defense. And the goal is uh, to push that first contact, that pass. And so if I was to just enter a serve uh, underhand, uh, the other team would pass it perfectly close to the net in the center of the court. And they would have a 70% chance or more of winning that rally. And so just by entering the ball, I only have a 30% chance of scoring. Now, if I could serve with a higher degree of difficulty and get that pass to land at maybe 10 feet off the net or 15 feet off the net or even further, those increments will increase my probability of success in defending what, you know, their offense. And so it's an incredibly important part of the game. And so we went by and said, okay, if it's that important, how do I become a potent server on a regular basis and we believe that it really starts with the routine and so we would you know from our steps to our bounces to our self-talk um and our, our you know our focus that entire script would need to be able to be articulated and eventually we you would want and, you know somebody that's just a bystander watching you to be able to write down your script by what they're observing and you know 20 people see the same 20 th you know yeah. things so i think it's huge too what i'm learning here is again i want this script and air quotes here to be utilized in the business world so here we've got you four-time olympian we had jackie joiner kersey on here obviously a great olympian athlete she would talk about doing the hurdles and then she knew when she jumped the hurdle she had x amount of steps and then another one then she and then you know, she knew down to the number of steps, and now here you are mentioning it as well. So I think so many of us in the in the quote-unquote business world that we don't look at it as it's literally down to the number of steps that you take of that serve. We just look at it, the common person watching you all on TV, we just think, you know, you get up there and hit the hell out of the ball, and, and, and you're really good. But there's so much more to it than that. There needs to be so much more to our meeting preparations, to, I mean, to all the stuff, our client meetings, whatever it may be. There's got to be a lot more prep put into it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that makes me think of uh, some of the best coaches I've played for have absolutely provided specifics, you know, roles, expectations, uh, guidance uh, to where there was no ambiguity. And as I'm sort of entering into that other business world, I'm noticing when there's a lack of those things those details, those scripts, um, things don't just figure themselves out. They get worse before they get better. Yeah. Well, and to use your word of mastery earlier, we always talk about clarity precedes mastery, right? And so when you are extremely clear with your script, that's when you're going to go out and master the serve. It's pretty simple. 
So let's talk about the the moment for you that sticks out the most on the journey to gold. We'll talk about the actual winning the gold in a little bit, but I want to talk about that journey because I think that's the important part and that's probably where you learn the most. But what sticks out the most on that journey to winning the gold medal? The moment that sticks out to me was the fact that as we were preparing for 2008, that was sort of before we had won anything. Um, and we had gotten to a place as a team and as a, as sort of a gym culture to be in the moment and to be present, uh, on the current moment. It's so easy to start to try to put the puzzle pieces and the information that you have together to forecast the future or even get hung up on the last play and what happened. And, and so both of those places are detrimental to your current performance and it takes up mental bandwidth that could be utilized to take in more data points and, and about what's happening in this actual moment right now. And I remember before winning the gold in 2008, my preparation for matches was simply, let me carve out three hours. Like I'm mentally carving out three hours to work and I'm just going to work and I'm going to work as hard as possible to win the next point. And that was it. There was no expectation. And the best compliment I had, I've ever heard uh, of that team was that you could never tell the score just by looking at the team uh, and, and our behavior. That's the first way to let the guys, the other team know they got you, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whether we were up by eight or down by eight, uh, we just operated the same. And to me, that was sort of the, you know, the pure days of competition before you start entering into expectations and, and, and stuff like that. I know I keep mentioning it, but I'm just fascinated by the amount of, uh, energy you all put in. And what I'm hearing from you is just the, the data points, the, the analytics, the number of steps. I mean, so again, if we, me, my listeners, everybody can continue to hear that is how crucial the small things are that nobody even sees, right? Because when we're watching you again on television, we don't see that stuff. We just think you show up, you play the game, right? We know obviously you train, you work hard, you work out, you eat right, you, you know, the 10,000 hour rule Malcolm Gladwell uh, talks about. And, and we see that stuff, but we don't think about the little stuff to be successful. So I think that's huge. So when you um, when you think about risk and, and you think about your life, what risk are you happy you took? I think that, uh, you know, early on when I first left uh, college, playing overseas, I mean, we didn't have smartphones and FaceTime and all of these things. And my my best friends were playing on the AVP tour, which at the time seemed like amazingly glamorous. And so it was not easy to separate from just sort of Southern California and the life that I thought that those guys were living and, and go to Italy for five months with virtually no communication or Austria for eight months the next year and just sort of being a hermit, <laughs> you know? Um, and so to me, those, those early years where it was just, I, I felt isolated, you know, far away. I'm so thankful for pushing through uh, those years because it wasn't easy. And there's a lot of people that go overseas that are that are talented individuals that come back, you know, a month or two in. It's not an easy life, uh, but I'm thankful uh, for having pushed through. 
Yeah, that's a big deal, man. You're right. With the technology doesn't make it that much easier, but it, it really is a lot easier today to do, go do that stuff, like you said, because of FaceTime. So um, what defines leadership for you? What defines leadership to me is, first and foremost, uh, I think empathy is important. Um, you know, the ability to to relate and say, I've been there, I, I know what you're feeling, but most importantly, it's just service. You've sort of reached a spot where it's not just about you all the time. And and I like to think of it, you know, in, in my journey, it was sort of life stage induced of how I sort of came to that realization. The first time was being married. And then, of course, having kids where you're sort of forced to realize that, that uh, you know, my existence is not just about me anymore. It's about others. And I think that the best leaders that I've been under are the ones that sort of have those qualities and that ability to sort of relate, empathize, uh, and serve and, and lead by example. And, you know, the, the guys that are the most vocal and girls aren't necessarily the best leaders all the time. Um, you know, but when you're with a group for a long period of time, you know who stands out as a leader and it's usually the guys or girls that are, are just living every day close to their convictions. You know, there's no inconsistencies and, and they're mindful of what's happening around them. It's not just about them. So let's talk about success now and how you either one define success. Uh, but what's that really look like for you in your life? And, and how many kids do you have? I have two kids. Two yeah. Kids. One se- seven year old boy and a two and a half little girl. Awesome, man. So I'm assuming, and the reason I ask is I'm assuming that's going to have a little bit to do with your definition of success. But what else? How how do you define success in your life? I think the idea of of being balanced um, is really important. And am I having an impact in having significance versus achieving something? And I, I think that's really difficult, especially for males to grasp. You know, forever mm-hmm. I'm just chasing achievement. And, and trying to be the best this or that. Uh, but then just realizing, especially in my layoff when I had double knee surgery, that um, nobody cares, nor should I. <laughs> you know, and, and what's really important is who I am as a person. And, and, and really relationships and experiences make up life. And so, you know, I want to have uh, meaningful relationships and share you know, amazing experiences with those people. And to me, to me, that's success. And I think there's another element that just the idea of, of trying to test those, those boundaries. And really we've all been given various uh, talents and abilities and to see those sort of maximized, I think is, is success. Um, it's not a, uh, it's not a title or a position. It's not a trophy and it's not uh, financially driven it's it's um you know it's more than that yep it's the impact and legacy and all that stuff so let's talk about fears i'm uh love this question um so you i'm assuming have put fears in your mind uh throughout your career would that be a fair statement definitely and how many of the fears that you've put in your mind have actually come true to the magnitude you thought they would be when you put them in your mind yeah, probably none of them, <laughs> right. um, or at least they didn't have the impact that maybe I thought they would. Right. Uh, but I, you know, I was never the most self-confident uh, individual, and um, 
I, you know, I remember being in high school and I was voted most likely to succeed. You know, I was voted those, a few of those things. And I, I really literally thought that the school was like, people were making fun of me um, <laughs> because I just didn't have that self-perception. Right. Um, and then I went on to college and I was always, like I said, sort of that outlier, like not, not the blue chip guy. And um, I remember there was two formative moments where, where two different individuals kind of spoke confidence into me. And I was like, well, gosh, I respect them. If they believe it, maybe I should. But it was, it was probably maybe five years into my professional career where I started to recognize that there was a stronger drive inside of me. It, the competitive drive was actually a stronger drive than my self-confidence. And when I started to tap into my desire to win, um, it would silence that internal self-talk or doubt. And once I sort of discovered that, that that was a more powerful system internally, I would just channel that. And that was my, that was my zone. Right. And whenever, whenever the pressure would mount or I would feel, you know, a president or a coach breathing down my neck, um, I would stop and literally go have some coffee, write in my journal and just remind myself that like, I'm not doing this for them. Um, you know what I mean? Like they don't own me. Right. Uh, I want to succeed and I want to win and I want to play to the best of my ability because I want that and who cares what they think. And that would always sort of center me, um, and, and help me, help me, um, perform. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, my posts, I, so every day I read and, uh, in the mornings and I post my highlights from what I take away from that reading every single day. It's on, uh, at Brett G Gilliland, uh, on Instagram. And today, so I want to read you this, something that I read uh, this morning. It's from Tom Brady's new book. And this is what they said, right? We've all heard this, but I think it's important. So this guy, they're talking about Tom Brady before he gets drafted. And here's what they said. Poor build, very skinny and narrow. Can't get pushed or can get pushed down more easily than you'd like. Lacks mobility and ability to avoid the rush. Lacks a really strong arm. Can't drive the ball down the field and does not throw a really tight spiral. <laughs> huh. That's awesome. I mean, isn't that amazing, right? I mean, that's his scouting report. And then now here he is, what, five Super Bowls later. And, you know, whether you like him or hate him, you know, greatest of all time from, a, from that standpoint. So I think what you just said is huge because it doesn't matter what other people say, right? It's that inner voice for you that's going to drive that success and help you be relentless and unstoppable and all the things that we know. And I think that's huge. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, talk to me about, um, you know, personally being in the moment. So you've got two kids and you talked about this earlier and I think we all struggle with it, but you got your gym at your house. I mean, everything's right there. How do you help our listeners that are busy and kids and all the craziness that we have in our lives stay in the journey and enjoy the moment? You know, I think it, I think a lot of it has to do with prioritization. Um, and, and just trying to figure out, you know, what are the, what are the one to two things that, that I can do today to move pieces across the board? Um, and that's, that's sort of what, what drives me. And, and the thing that, um, it, you know, it's really interesting in our day and age, we're so, we're so driven by, by money as if it's the greatest resource there is. Mm -hmm. Whereas time actually is, we have a, you know, you can always make more money. Right. But time, you have no idea uh, how much of it you have. Uh, there's a finite supply. And so 
as I'm sort of trying to, you know, build a business at the same time, go to another Olympic games, being 40 with two kids, I cannot afford half-hearted reps anymore. Um, and so that's sort of what drives me on a daily basis to be in the moment is just the sheer fact that like, look, if I'm going to invest time, like that's my biggest investment that I can make right now. And if I'm going to make this investment, I want to make sure the return on this time is, is, is massive. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I, I do not want to invest my time and not be mentally present to get everything I can get out of those reps because now I'm wasting, you know, my most precious, uh, you know, commodity at the moment. So last few questions here, but if you could go back, you know, 10, 15 years ago and tell the 25 or 30 year old Reed, and you give him some little feedback or give him a little information. What's that look like? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think it would probably be the message that, that who you are is more important than what you do. And what I mean by that is, you know, in those early years, there was just such a drive to achieve. And, you know, now being my age now, it's like, yeah, I still have that same drive. Like I want to win a gold medal in Tokyo and I'm trying to do it against guys that are 20 years younger than me. Like, like I get all of that stuff, but I don't want to sacrifice. Like that's not the most important thing, whether I do that or not, doesn't matter. The, the point is, is, is who am I while I'm doing it? And am I giving my best? Uh, because I've noticed and, and realized that when you're in that space, you will 100% be successful because your character is being formed, shaped and molded all along the way. And, and I try my best to just be a consistent person. You know, who I am off the court is the same on the court. Uh, you know, that's my goal. And so that's probably what I'd be saying to, to that younger version. I like it. So now let's talk about your, uh, your set, you're standing, you're not sitting, you're standing on the podium and, uh, they're playing the national anthem. And uh, tell us what that, I mean, I'm getting chills just talking about it right now. And you, you just represented your country, you guys, your team, the battle, the journey you guys just went through. You just won the gold medal. Walk me through that. You know, that was, that was incredibly emotional and special. Uh, there was so much off the court that took place during that Olympic Games, obviously with our coach and his family, on uh, the tragedy that took place there. It's sort of like a pinch me moment. Like, did this did this really happen? I mean, like we, we, that entire quad, um, uh, sort of started in a hotel room in Anaheim, you know, four years prior where our coach made a bunch of 18 to 25 year olds sit in a room and, and try to articulate a goal and put it on a piece of paper. And that's the last thing a bunch of testosterone filled, you know, athletes wanted to do was sort of talk about things and, and put things on paper. But we wrote down, um, we're going to win the 2008 Olympic games. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to utilize these skills and we're going to work this hard and we're going to do it together. And, and then the mantra became play hard, play smart, play together. And that it was just amazing to sort of, and at the time we were not trending, we were not the up and coming team. And so to be on the podium, hearing that song, seeing the flag raised, you know, recognizing the beautiful freedoms that we have in our country and, and, you know, all of that stuff. It was just like, it was just almost too, too much to bear just to, just to know the journey and how, how it was accomplished and how we did it together. And to see a culture form, 
um, that didn't previously exist that was team driven and and really daily gained mindful i mean we were about making gains daily and uh that was a special moment i bet i bet and uh Tell us real quick, what's your philosophy on uh, kids' sports? You know, so I've got four boys. Uh, Dan's got a couple kiddos. Um, you know, life is just way different than when you and I were kids, right? And so I'm glad to hear you say 40 feels good because I turned 40 in about, you know, 40 days. So uh, we're nice. the same age. And uh, so, but when you think about kids' sports today, man, where do, you, where do you see parents failing? Where do you see them being successful? What do you recommend? Well, I think we have it. I think in general, I think we recognize that w the whole hover mindset and and like pushing them and acting like they need to be doing X, Y, or Z if they want to get somewhere. Um, and it's just over. It's just too much. You know, for me, my focus is on how my son is acting and my daughter is act acting. That's that. I want them to. More than anything, um, if I've come to embrace failure, I want them to embrace failure. Um, and if they could do that at a younger age, maybe they could have, you know, a more successful um, career than, than myself um, and be a more pleasant person to be around in their 20s <laughs> when things aren't going, aren't going well. And, you know, this whole concept of constant rewards, I think, sabotages you know, that very thing that we're, that we would like is, is how do you, how do you face coming up short? How do you respond in a way that makes sure that you're better the next time versus let's appease that feeling of discomfort. No, sit in it, feel it. It's uncomfortable. It sucks losing. Uh, it never feels good. However, just let it run its course because if you do, there will be positive, positive uh, gains reaped in the end. That's great advice. Tell us about your book. I wrote a book. Um, I started probably, uh, probably just under a year ago, and it, it was not something I set out to do. But I was um, asked to do a like a, a five session boys junior camp. Uh, of volleyball. And so I, once all the logistics were done, I sort of sat in my garage and I just said, okay, what am I going to say? <laughs> I'm responsible for 15 hours of content. And that's when I sort of busted out, you know, the 20 years of journals and started to really think through, man, I've been on this hamster wheel for 20 years. This is the first time I'm actually looking back. And, and as I did, spe very specific themes um, started to emerge. And, and it was sort of uh, very natural to sort of, you know, put pen to paper and, and, and put together what became a book. And it, again, it wasn't something I set out to do. And it turns out that I, I have something I, I want to say, and, and I like, uh, I like writing. So it was, it was a great experience. Awesome. And where can our listeners find more of that book or get that book? Right now you can download it for free on my website at readpretty.com. Um, and I'm actually adding to it now, um, and going to do an Amazon launch here soon. So, so get it while you uh, can. For now, free, they, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, man, uh, I believe life is about making memories and creating experiences, and you said that earlier. So, what's the uh, what's the next experience on your bucket list? Because you've done a lot of cool things in your life, uh, but anything out there for you and your wife and your kids that's on the bucket list? 
Oh, the bucket list. Well, we're, we're constantly trying to slow down and enjoy our time together. So that's, that's number one. Uh, and a close two and three, once I'm done with volleyball is to be a Ryder cup captain's pick, uh, in golf <laughs> and to, uh, fill in for rich Redmond in the Jason Aldean band drumming. Oh, so there you go, man. I, I think they're attainable. I'm, I'm all about big goals, but uh, like we'll, we'll have to see. Hey, Shirley, you can go from the, you know, from the hard court to the, uh, to the sand and, and get to the Olympics. You surely can get to the Ryder cup, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, but exactly, exactly. Those guys are good, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being on there. And where can our listeners uh, find more of Read Pretty on uh, social media? Yeah, just official Read Pretty on Instagram. Um, I'm on Facebook. I've got a weekly newsletter I call Whiteboard Wednesday, where I just try to, you know, these are the things I'm working on. This is the the technology tool I'm using. And it's really amazing. It's 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 really um, building this community of of feedback loops where we're sort of bouncing ideas off one another uh, with the goal of all reaching our max potential. So yeah, check it out. We will uh, put that in the show notes for our listeners where they can connect with you easily. Uh, great stuff, man. I took a ton of notes. I know Dan Laurie here. Uh, he did as well. I'm looking at this guy. He's probably gonna have cramps on his hands here. He got a lot of stuff. So it's great having you on the Circuit of Success. I appreciate you joining us. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.